Hi, and welcome to Oscar Podcast Episode 33. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. Today we're still going through our Oscar years, and we've actually unfortunately moved out of the 70s, and we're starting with our first year of the 80s, 1980, the year that Ordinary People famously beat Raging Bull. We just happened to be starting talking about tests for some reason because we, the beginning of our our conversation had to do with kind of the the change in Roman Polanski's career before and after the the Manson murders and how he made kind of odd, violent-ish, dark films before that, but then he made tests, which um, got kind of killed in Germany. It got really bad reviews, and then when it opened here. It didn't do that great with the critics, but the Academy really embraced it. Um, well, at least I it, think it maybe did. the change was actually because he did make Chinatown and The Tenant after the, after the Manson murders, mm. and so I think it was after he was uh, exiled that he that he decided to make uh, yeah. a, a, a sort of a change of pace sort of movie. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, uh, the story goes that this was the this was the last book that uh, Sharon Tate gave him, with his suggestion that he turn it into a movie. And the film, actually, in the opening credits, he dedicates it to her. That's right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. But it's when you look at it filmography wise, it seems it's. I mean, I'm not a Roman Polanski expert by any means, but it just doesn't seem like his cup of tea or necessarily the material that would interest him. And when you watch the film, it's there's nothing unusual about it at all. It's very respectful to the source, very straightforward. Um, it's actually a little surprising the Academy didn't go for a little more than even what they did. I mean, they gave it a lot of technical awards and was obviously nominated for picture and director, but. Um, it just seems like something right up their alley. He had never made any movie like that before, but he did. After that, he did make, um, of course, the pianist, the pianist, and and then um, Oliver Oliver Twist, which were sort of along in the same vein as more traditional type movies, right? Yeah, and I, I was old enough to remember um, Tess, and I think there was a bit of a hullabaloo about her age and his obsession with after he'd been arrested and everything and, and exiled, and then now he's doing a. a a movie about a stunningly beautiful, you know, I guess she was 16 when they first started mm. or 17, something like that. And were they not in a relationship at the time? No, the the rumor is that they were. Yeah. Oh, it's not it's not officially known. I don't know. Do you guys know? Have you heard no, I, don't. I I seem to recall that yes, they did um have a relationship. But um she's beautiful. She looks the part, but she's not she's not a very interesting character. It's um I don't know if it's the character itself or if it's her performance that's a little bit flat, but I when I read the book, I picture her as being a little sharper, a little more intelligent because she I mean she's not college educated or anything, but she seems to stand out from the from the class of people around her yeah. in terms of her her wits, but um Natasha Kinsey doesn't really other than visually, she doesn't really stand out too much. But visually, what a face. What yeah. a face. I mean, if you do a Google image search and look for uh, Nastasia Kinski at that age during that movie, and it is astonishing how beautiful. I mean, she looks like Ingrid Bergman. Um, really, I mean, I remember at the time there were two things people said about her in this movie. It was one that she was like one of the most beautiful women anybody had ever seen. And they said about like creating whole film roles for her. And two, she wasn't very good in the movie. And, the, and like Craig saying, the part wasn't very interesting. But it didn't matter because she was so stunningly beautiful. Um, she's better, I think, in my favorite role of hers, which is Paris, Texas. Uh, 
as the the wife. That that's my favorite Nastasia Kinski role for sure. But she was a little older and wiser by then. Still beautiful, but not quite what she was. I think the one I remember her best from the time was Cat People. Even though I, I look back on it now and I don't think very much of it, but that one made a huge impact. But that was when she was sort of that was her post test height of stardom, basically. Was right. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we haven't heard a lot from her since, have we? No, she, you know, she was kind of famous for her marriages, I think. Um, although I'm, I'm, I'm not up on my, my, uh, my Kinski gossip. I should know more than I do, but, um, but I think she kind of got, you know. I'm looking at her at her uh, filmography right now. I forgot that she was in Inland Empire. Yeah, small part. Yeah. Uh huh. But really, it, it, uh, her, the roles really thin out after the mid, after the mid eighties, mm. as her as her as her youthful beauty faded, and 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 there wasn't a whole lot of maybe a whole lot of acting talent maybe to back that up. Uh, the roles didn't didn't materialize. Yeah. Um, oh, but she was with- reason enough to make the movie just to make a movie just to photograph her. Though I mean, right? I mean, just to preserve that on oh, film yeah, for sure. is enough reason to make the movie. I agree with that. And she was with Quincy Jones. That was the famous guy she was with. Um, It says uh, on Wikipedia, it says, although sources differ, some say that in 1976, Kinski began a a relationship with Roman Polanski. She was 15 and he was 43. Mm. So, uh, but that doesn't, that's not really a source. That's just, um, but I I think I remember her saying that she did. Um, Yeah, because she, uh, you know... (sighs) What she was was somebody who really, really did depend a lot on the way her face looked and how the camera captured that, you know. And once she got older, it kind of went away, and there weren't a lot of roles for her after that. She was nominated for, uh, of course, a César Award, uh, the French uh, Best Actress Award uh, for Tess. And, but that's about it, really, for Tess. She, uh, she also the a Golden Globe Award, and she that year... Uh, she won New Star of the Year at the Golden Globes. Hmm. <laughs> She's great in Paris, Texas, really. That's yeah. worth worth seeing for sure. All right, so anyway, that was the year of Tess. That was a big, kind of a big deal. Um, Tess had actually come out the year before, but it was a year before it was able to qualify. Was It was a year before it was eligible in America because it didn't, didn't open here until a year later. It right. was really a 1979 film is when it was produced, which so, makes her even younger when you think yeah. about her age and everything. And I think but, you uh, can really see the male influence on this because two really great movies that year were not picked for best picture um so that tess could could get in there and and one was um stuntman which actually got a um a best director nomination um but roman polanski also got one for for tess uh, weirdly yeah, enough, you know, that's, in, in a way, that's pretty remarkable. That 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 Hollywood was was not only forgiving, but almost in a way that wanted to actually seems as if make a statement by nominating him so soon after his after his scandal. Yeah, you know, the actresses who are nominated tonight, I think, are characteristic of a new actor, if you will, that is a part of this town or community that we call Hollywood that make the films in which we see. The studio system is dead, meaning no longer can those few who are gifted enough and talented enough, those 
actors who don't take the first job that comes along have a choice now. They aren't handed a number of roles, four or five within a year, by the studio. They pick, and their choice or the careers is as much dependent on the roles which they turn down in as much as the ones they choose. So each actress tonight, for the most part, probably has been a part of the inception of the part, the writing, the rewriting, a part of the production of it, and the selection of the other actors, the post-production of it, and even the promotion of the film. Most of these actresses nominated tonight probably have been with this one role for one, two, or three years. They were little tots when they started out. <laughs> and before they get any older, perhaps we should get on with the business at hand. For her performance as a woman who used a power she herself hardly understood to bring he healing and health to an unhappy Midwestern town, Miss Ellen Burstyn for Resurrection. for her performance as a woman who grows from naivete to strength and survives no less an adversary than the United States Army, Miss Goldie Hawn as Private Benjamin. For her role as a mother unable and unwilling to bend her own self-imposed restrictions on the meaning of love and life, Miss Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People. for her performance as a world-hardened woman who finds unexpected humanity within herself during a desperate effort to save a child's life, and in so doing saves her own, Miss, Miss Gina Rollins in Gloria. And for her portrayal of a woman who conquered ignorance and poverty to become the synonym for the world she now represents, Miss Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the Academy, your choice is Miss Sissy Spacek. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I'm speechless. <laughs> I, I started to work on Coal Miner's Daughter with a, with a bunch of strangers, and I finished working on Coal Miner's Daughter with a bunch of friends. And I want to thank Loretta what did you, Lynn. Uh, since you just rewatched Coal Miner's Daughter, Sasha, and I watched it too, what did you, how did, it, how did it go down for you this time? I'm sure, I'm assuming you'd seen it a number of times before. A long time ago, I'd watched it. I really didn't want to watch it again because my thoughts at the time um, were reinforced when I saw it again. It's basically a very linear story of, of Loretta Lynn's life, and, and mm -hmm. how much you like the movie depends on how interested you are in her. Um, and I think Sissy Spacek is incredible in the part. I mean, half the Oscar that she won was won just for her singing those songs. 
And she's such an incredible screen presence. I mean, she's really one of the great ones. And and I just anytime she's on screen, it just lights up. And Tommy Lee Jones is as good as due. But I feel the story to be very kind of flat. It just goes in one uh, linear direction. She's poor. She gets married. She gets famous. And that's the end, you know. Yeah, it's a pretty typical music biography trajectory, which, you know, at the time maybe it was a little more novel than it is now. It seems like we get a couple of these every year, and it, it, they've gotten kind of tiresome. Michael yeah. Apted is not known for being a really imaginative director. He's done a lot of pretty standard films. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's realistic, it's interesting and everything, but it is today it would be on Lifetime. There's a danger to it, too. It's a little bit self-serving, I think, because she was responsible for the making of it. I don't know how much I trust the point of view of it so much. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like um, she comes off looking great in it, and you wonder how much of that is just her sort of buttering up her own image and how much of it was really that way. Yeah, I would like to know the real story. I mean, everything, every person that she loved is portrayed in a very glowing light, like her dad and her mom. Um the kids are just kind of there and then they're not there. Uh, I know that husband was a lot worse than he's portrayed on, you know, he probably cheated a lot more. He probably hit her a lot more. He probably drank a lot more. Um, they, they do show him hitting her a little bit, but he's basically responsible for her career in this movie. He's the one who gets to the guitar. He's the one who gives her confidence that she can sing. And I really see that she's grateful to him and that the telling this story is her way of, of paying him due. You know, but you pay a price in the world when you when you get famous at, at such a young age and, and you get married at 13 and you don't get educated and you're not smart. And she's teased about being a hillbilly. Well, she never really got a chance to develop her intellectual life, you know. And so when she looks at her story, she very much looks at it from the point of view of a country western singer. <laughs> it's a country western song, that movie, you know. Um, but she did have the presence of mind to look at her life and realize that she missed out on some things. She went yeah. from being a little girl to being a wife to being, and she even says that, to a to a mom, to a country star. And there was never any time in there for her to just be her. And that, that was probably yeah. the most interesting part of the whole movie. Yeah, I liked that. And I also liked the parts where she sort of, where she flew off at the mouth and... and she would say, this is me, you know, and it was just really fun to watch Sissy Spacek do that in, in the southern accent, just really be a, you know, a fireball. It's just it's something As good great as her competition was that year, it's not surprising to me at all that she won, and I'm, I wouldn't say that she wasn't deserving either. Me either. I don't see how you could not. However, I do have to say that it would be tough for me between... Um, Mary Tyler Moore and Ordinary People and Sissy Spacek. Uh, Sissy Spacek has to just get the award because of the songs. She sings all those songs. Um, but Mary Tyler Moore gave one of the best performances ever by any actor ever. I mean, it's such a great, um, cra cra from a craft perspective, such a brilliant performance. And to play totally against type from what we knew and loved about her. Except that, what I found out when reading Inside Oscar was that poor Mary Tyler Moore, She's after the movie came out and she got these rave reviews, um, she said in an interview that she drew on personal experience that raising her only child, a son, she was a cold and distant mother. And they, though they became close later, she really regretted those early years. And um, a month later, her son committed suicide. Wow. Yeah, 
imagine uh, that. Af- after the Oscars or after her interview? Right on the eve of the Oscars. Wow. So I can, or, or, you know, before voting, I can see why people wouldn't have voted for her, you know? Yeah, and I think she's already got an uphill battle because Sissy Spacek plays a likable character that you root for and you want to see succeed in the end, whereas in Ordinary People, you're happy to see Mary Tyler Moore's character drive off into the sunset yeah. and, le- and leave good old dad and the kid behind. All he wants is to know that you don't hate him. That's hate it. him? God, how could I hate him? Mothers don't hate their sons. Is that what he told you? Do you see how you accept what he says with no questions and you can't do the same thing for me, I'm just trying to keep this family God, I don't together. know what anyone wants from me anymore. Nobody wants anything from me. Look, look. We all just want Cal, Con, everybody. We just want you to be happy. Happy? Yes. Ward, you tell me the definition of happy, huh? But first, you better make sure that your kids are good and safe. That no one's fallen off a horse or been hit by a car or drowned in that swimming pool you're so proud of. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. To be happy. Yeah, but from an acting perspective, who gave the better performance? Mary Tyler Moore, for sure. But Sissy Spacek is great, too. She's great. It's just that she's so young, and it's not that big of a leap for her to go to, to do Loretta Lynn. And she was handpicked by Loretta Lynn because of their similarities, you know. And uh, Mary Tyler Moore, I thought, had to go to a darker, deeper place and had to work a lot harder to get that performance out. That couldn't have been easy playing that. And she is one of the, that is one of the iconic performances. Can't complain about Sissy Spacek winning, though. So. It's hard. You don't want to take anything away from Sissy, but it is sort of unfortunate that Mary Tyler Moore got overlooked for a career performance like that. Yeah, she never was going to ever get close to Oscar after that. And so this is the famous year that, that um, Raging Bull, one, considered one of the greatest films of all time, only won two Oscars, editing an actor, um, up against Ordinary People, uh, which won director and picture and supporting actor. The thing about Ordinary People, though, is it's really stood the test of time. It is by no means an embarrassment uh, it's a really good movie. It's a master class in acting, and Redford did an incredible job, I think, directing. And as we've gone through the 70s, we've been highlighting Robert Redford's power in Hollywood, um, and his reign was the 70s. And so you can see how, after that decade, if he turns out a movie like Ordinary People, you bet they're going to throw statues at him. It's, it's like um, Ben Affleck winning. It's It's Hollywood rewarding their own, someone who graduated you know graduated hollywood school in the 70s and this is his thesis ordinary as people much, as much as 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 uh, nobody realized that mary tyler moore had that in her probably no one really had had any idea that robert redford had it in him to direct a movie like that because he right. never shown any indication that he could do it until then and he really resented just being the pretty boy and i think he he relished the opportunity in in two of his best films, Quiz Show and Ordinary People, he really digs in, oh, and, and also A River Runs Through It, he digs into the idea of the, the two dueling characters, the, the, um, and it, you know, the, the charismatic, beautiful, square-jawed golden boy and the vulnerable, sensitive, observant other kid, you know? And I think he sees himself as that kid and the public sees him as the golden boy. And Ordinary People was his chance to really show, I think, who he is inside.
he was a much bigger star too than Ben Affleck ever was. And Ordinary People is a way better movie than Argo is. Right. A long shot. But it's it, that um, same impulse. It really I hits think. you where you live emotionally. Yeah. From a first-class novel, and Alvin Sargent uh, wrote the screenplay, who had previously written Paper Moon. So, he, uh, you know, it's just a, it was just a really rich movie on every level. Really, really uh, had a lot of depth. Yeah, and it never falters. I mean, you're watching it. I can watch it today, and it has as much emotional resonance as it did when I first saw it. And it had, you know, a pretty hardcore impact, I think, back when it first came out. Um we were sort of really on the eve of the therapy nation. People were just starting to really go to therapy and discover, you know, the problems of their childhood and their horrible mothers and <laughs> absent fathers or whatever. Um, but Redford is really good at making sure every character has a whole experience on screen. You know, um, we, we really get to know all of them. And a lot of directors don't do that, you know. No, they're too quick to make a good guy and a bad guy and leave it at that, where in this case, Moore does come across the most negatively, but she's given her due, too. She's she's allowed to show all of her sides. And so many screenplays are written written as sort of a star vehicle type of thing where there's like one big draw to the movie, and that's the central person, and everyone else are just satellites around that person. And that's that's a, that's a, that's a problem in the screenplay that, that ordinary people didn't have... Uh, because the screenplay was written as an ensemble. Yeah, and it's it's really, again, startling to see, to have gone through this Oscar year and to have seen that the measly crumb of the Jessica Chastain performance as being so exceptional because it was a movie about a woman um, and the poor excuse for a, a part that Jennifer Lawrence played in Silver Linings Playbook compared to Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter and Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People... Um, these whole and even even um, Nastasia Ellen Burstyn Ellen Burstyn in uh, in in Resurrection it was, the movie was all about her she was in virtually yeah. every scene that's a funny I would, I would throw Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin in there too it was a mm-hmm. comic movie but um, people forget what a force she was just as a producer all by herself and Gloria with Jenna Rollins mm-hmm. um, I just I just want to point out that you know there was a time when when women were considered something other than just the love interest, you know, and it's, it's really, it's really astonishing to see the comparison between that, these movies and now, I mean, it's, it's really anybody who can't, who doesn't notice it isn't paying attention, I don't think, but anyway, so we said that. Before you move on though, let me read something. I have it bookmarked here in this book. I have uh, Ellen Burstyn's uh, autobiography and it's called um, Lessons in Becoming Myself. Is it her, 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 journey of discovery from uh and also he talked a lot about her personal life and also a lot of details about the movies then that she made and, and why she made the choices that she made and she talks about um she says during the filming of the exorcist warner's screened dailies and sent a message to my agent that they would like to do another film with me mm. they began sending me all the scripts they owned that had any role that i could conceivably play Reading these scripts was an education. Every woman in them was either a victim, the understanding wife of a hero who was out saving the world, or a prostitute or some other style of sex object. 
there was no script whatsoever where the woman was the protagonist. Wow. And that was in 1973. She was feeling that. So even though we do see some movies in the 70s and early 80s where women were able to find roles, it was it was really hard even then because she but, was having trouble with the scripts they were sending her in 1973. Sure. But the difference is between then and now is that women still had some power then because they mm-hmm. could do some damage at the box office. Right. Now they can't, so they don't have that ammunition. And you would like to think that things would would progress on an upward continuum, that they would, at a certain point in 1973, but then they would improve by the end of the decade, and that it would keep going. But obviously it reached a certain point, and then the tide washed back out again, and we're right back to where we started. Yeah, we, I think it really ha- started with Julia Roberts. That, that's where I think things started to really change, because... She was such a big box office draw, but what she had was so ephemeral, is that the right word? Yes. Um, temporary, you know, so, like, it could blow away in a second like a butterfly. Like, she couldn't really become a very – she couldn't, you know, build from that. It was more like, okay, you're here and you're gone. What we see now with women is, is a lot like Julia Roberts. They're here. They're famous for a little while. They make some money and they go away, you know. Mm-hmm. And even though it was a, not only was it ephemeral for Julia Roberts herself, it was also pretty hard to replicate for other actresses. It's pretty hard for any actress to sustain that for more than yeah. a couple of years. Right, because you can't if you're just mm-hmm. if it's about you know this sort of youthful wind that blows in. Um, but a funny story about Resurrection, as I was reading in Inside Oscar, was that the studio tried to sell it as a horror movie. I think probably I because... I think it actually, yeah, a horror movie or science fiction, I think. Because, because the, um, think was, the, the Exorcist did so well. Mm-hmm. And she had, she had sort of... She, the movie's about a woman who, who uh, has a near-death experience. She's in a car accident, and she almost dies. And so they bring her back in the operating room. And while she's... Um, away on the edge of you know uh, on the edge of death she comes back with special healing powers and those are those are those, they don't mess around i mean they really show her actually laying hands on people and healing people of all sorts of afflictions i mean you name it she heals them and it's it and it's done in a way without any special effects or anything like that but it is done it's it has a supernatural element to it it doesn't go it doesn't it does not religious. It's it's more supernatural. It's more metaphysical. And yeah. so I think that they tried to sell that as a sort of a horror film or or even science fiction. Yeah, and I remember I remember it. Do. I always thought that's what it was, which is why I never watched it. I did finally watch it, and I was surprised by it, it wasn't that at all. Mm-hmm. And she says, um, I'll read you the paragraph about it in Inside Oscar. Um, she got great reviews, um, but it flopped. Like it made no money. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it says, but these glowing critical notices weren't enough to make Ellen Burstyn happy. Now Universal has gotten discouraged over the low grosses and given up. I'm so discouraged that I really feel devastated. Everyone who sees the film seems to love it. I've had people tell me it changed their lives. So I simply will not give up on a film I believe so strongly in, and I'm going to fight for the success of Resurrection if it kills me. The actress actress inspired her cohorts from the Actors Studio to help out, and Rex Reed warned readers, don't be surprised if you run into June Havoc or Eli Wallach outside the Citicorp building passing out leaflets, urging people to see Resurrection because it's good for their souls. This method didn't work either, and a Universal executive said, we've tried everything, but let's face it, God isn't commercial. But Burstyn begged to differ. It's that commercial Hollywood mentality that's not working when they'd rather drag a good film down than be proven wrong. I get so frustrated and sick, I wonder why I got into this business in the first place. So her Oscar, her Oscar nomination was a vindication of, of that. Mm-hmm. She was happy about it. 
Sure, absolutely. Some of that is, is um, directly from the biography that I quoted earlier. And, you know, another element to that story, another, the other movie that Universal was handling that had a Best Actress a candidate that year was Coal Miner's Daughter. So yeah. Universal had to play Sophie's Choice with Coal Miner's Daughter or Resurrection. Who are we going to throw our weight behind? Who are we going to promote? And are we going to want to have these two actresses compete against each other? Or are we going to try to bury one of the movies and elevate the other one, the one that is more successful? Coal Miner's Daughter was doing really well at the box office. It, it ended up close to $70 million. And so Universal decided to go with the moneymaker. Oh, yeah. That's a great performance by Ellen Burstyn. Really strongly recommend it. I, I always thought it was supposed to be like a cheesy horror movie. I can't believe the marketing has lasted this long. But I was surprised yeah, that it wasn't. What's amazing about it, too, are the supporting roles, too, are really strong. Yeah. Really incredibly strong. Is Sam it Sam Shepard? Yeah, he's, he's the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was surprised to see one of her cousins. Um, do you remember in... in uh, Minority Report, when Tom Cruise goes to see the woman who's like a, uh, she's in her greenhouse and she's growing those really um, bizarre genetically uh, um, modified plants, and she, she, she gives him advice. She used to be on, she used to be part of the Minority part Report Commission. Anyway, she, she gives a really Im- impressive performance in Minority Report. She's a standout, and she plays the cousin in Resurrection. Hmm, I, I've funny. never seen her in, in anything except those two films, but it's, she's she must she's almost like a she's a totally different type of actress. It's like some sort of method acting I've never seen before. It's so so naturalistic. Wow. So Lois Smith, she played the sister in uh, Five Easy Pieces as well. What is her background? Her acting is so different from anyone else of of, of the in the eighties. I assume she came up through theater like all, most of the good ones, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I don't know her story very well at all. Yeah. Uh, another funny story about 1980, um, really, The Elephant Man, um, David Lynch's movie, was so great, but strangely, it didn't get a makeup nomination, and there was a lot of outcry about that, and they had tried to get it nominated um, as a, you know, like a special tribute Oscar, like they sometimes do, mm-hmm. and the Academy wouldn't budge, but they, they did agree after that, I think, we can check, but to have a permanent makeup category after The Elephant Man didn't get, can you imagine? <laughs> Hello, Academy. Uh, the Elephant Man doesn't get a makeup nomination, but you know, Raging Bull could have also been could have qualified for makeup then too. Mm-hmm. And Empire Strikes Back, which by the way was also that year and did not get a Best Picture nomination, and is the best of the Star Wars movies. It's worth noting. Um, what? Um, I'm sorry, I'm, going, I'm backtracking a little bit because I think obviously the, the big story about this year is Raging Bull, Ordinary People thing. Yeah. What um, do you, does your book or do you remember what the response at the time was? Because I'm kind of thinking that we're sort of looking back at Raging Bull with the hindsight of, of what a great movie it is. Whereas mm. at the time, I don't know that it was even university belo- universally beloved. I know Pauline Kael trashed it and watching it even now i'm almost not surprised that it that it didn't win because it's uh it's so dark it's so uh, it's it, the the lead character is basically a monster it's a it's a difficult film so it doesn't really surprise mm. me that it wasn't embraced even I though think, it's it's looked at as one of the great snubs of all time but i, I remember um i remember when it came out and i remember that uh and in the book, it also backs this up. It, it was thought of as a downer, and there was a little bit of a like a whisper campaign kind of going on that that um, Robert De Niro, who did win Best Actor, had um, 
gone too far with his method acting, that he had gained 50 pounds and that they had to wait months and months to shoot that. And, uh, you know, people were just... Act, some actors, some famous actors were saying that that was silly, you know, that they thought it was too too much. Um, that was one thing. And the other thing was Jake LaMotta and his family were kind of disappointed with the movie. And I think one of the LaMottas threatened to sue the production. And at the same time, it was depressing and black and white. So it didn't make a lot of money. It was really critically acclaimed. I don't know about Pauline Kelly. I know she didn't like Ordinary People, but I didn't read what she said of Raging Bull. But at the time, Raging Bull was, was critically acclaimed enough for me to, for it to have gotten through to me, a really ditzy teenager um, who's, what, I was like in 10th grade or something, or 9th grade. It had gotten through to me as, as kind of a big deal, you know. Um, it had to have been fairly critically acclaimed. It won um, Best Actor and Best Picture from the L.A. Film Critics, and it won Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor from the New York Film Critics, and Best Director, second place uh, slot from Martin Scorsese, and third place for Best Film from the New York Film Critics. And so it was critically acclaimed, but I do think that it probably, I think you're right, Craig, that we, in retrospect, would look back at uh, Martin Scorsese and we think um, he's always been revered. But this was on the heels of Taxi Driver was 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 polarizing, and then he uh, he sort of he he backtracked a little bit from from his from his own work and, and uh, didn't know what how to how to react to the reaction to Taxi Driver. He made a documentary. Did he make New York, New York before or after Raging Bull? Before. Before, so that was a, that was kind of a bomb, and so I think that that he that even though we look back and think he's always had a, a smooth path in his career, I think he was struggling a little bit to gain um, respect, and he hadn't yeah. yet really reached that plateau yet. And as you he was see, having a lot of personal problems too at this point, wasn't he? Wasn't this when he was he was hospitalized and he was having problems with drugs and stuff? Yeah, and I'm and sure those stories floated around, or you know, back behind the scenes, and people probably knew what a mess he was. Um, should also maybe mention, although this wouldn't have affected voting at all for, at all for the Oscars, but the day on Oscar Eve, on the yeah. Oscar, Oscar morning, uh, on March 30th, is when um, he, uh, a guy shot uh, President Reagan. Hinkley, yeah. Hinkley, right. Uh, and and based on and, and and then they went to his apartment that afternoon and they found his letter to Jodie Foster, and so all that came out that he was that he had been influenced by Taxi Driver. Yeah, that was hardcore. They they postponed the Oscars for a day, I think, and um, mm-hmm. Reagan had pre-recorded a, a an announcement to be played at the Oscars, which can you imagine how strange that would have been? But. Um, I know. But I I think that I just want to say a few words for Raging Bull. I really do think that if the Academy was the kind of group that that rewarded artistic best, um, I think that Raging Bull would have won. But I don't think that those are the kind of people that would ever have seen Raging Bull as the masterpiece that it is. What we're seeing as we go through the 70s is the kind of movies that get rewarded and how inside Hollywood works. And yes, it's true that most of the films that won also happened to capture the zeitgeist. They were the movie everybody was talking about. I'm sure Ordinary People was that movie, too. It really was a big deal. But they also really reward the successful power players in town. And that's why it takes so long to get in their club. And that's why Fincher's not in their club. And that's why Scorsese, it took him a really long time to get into their club to become a respected power player. Somebody who makes a lot of money at the box office, you know, 
He was respected enough by maybe 20 or 25 percent of the Academy so that he was able to continue to his movies were nominated, but he didn't have the, the numbers of, of, of support, supporters in the Academy to actually pull off wins. He had enough support in the Academy who, who recognized what he was doing to get the nominations, but not to pull off the wins. Yeah. Then Raging Bull is, um, you know, it starts out with, with young Jake LaMotta. It's, it's filmed in this gorgeous, creamy black and white. And, you know, he meets, he, he's a young fighter. He meets Vicky, who Kathy Moriarty was 17 when she made Raging Bull, by the way. It's worth noting. Uh, she was totally just plucked off the street to play that part. And she's stunningly beautiful to look at. And she's great in the part. Um, and then it's his, it's his rise as a fighter and then his fall. And the fall is, is, is as important as the rise. And part of it is De Niro's performance, but part of it is Scorsese's ability to really look at the, the sad, pathetic, dark side of characters. And he does it really well in a lot of his movies. And especially this, like a couple of scenes are my favorite in Raging Bull. And one of them is um, when he's when the woman's 14 and he gets put in jail and he's like banging his head against the wall. Why did I do it? 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 <laughs> And then the other scene is when he thinks he's going to make money and he cashes in his champion's belt, but he but pounds he it with it apart by destroying it. <laughs> he pounds it with a hammer and thinks he can get more money from the stones. And, it's and the, the stones are like little, uh, like like cheap junk. Stones, yeah, right. He's just a loser. He's a schmuck, you know. At the it's end of the day, because the thing that made him a great boxer totally short circuits his personal life, and ultimately short circuits his career as a boxer too. The thing that made him his ability to take punishment and the way he thrived off of it ultimately got the better of him. It, yeah. it's like he he was doomed. He was doomed to fail from the beginning. But you know, I can't stand boxing movies or wrestling movies at all. I can't hardly, I cannot even watch them. But this Raging Bull is a favorite of mine because it does show what a pathetic way it is to make a living. And how hard it, it's hard to watch. And as we know now, it, it should not. It should you know it bears repeating again and again. But for a few exceptions here and there, Oscar move, Best Picture winners are always the ones you can sit anybody down in front of, and they will get it if not love it and you can't sit anybody down in front of raging bull um for one thing the black and white doesn't appeal to everybody but secondly those fight scenes they're brutal even in black and white they're and they're they're 
beautiful. I mean, this is like the, a genius director at work. You've never seen anything like this. And uh, the editing. And the, the editing. But you won for. But just yeah. that one shot, that incredibly memorable shot of the rope, of the bloody rope. I mean, that's just like, wow. I mean, you think of if you think of Hitchcock as being the be-all, end-all, and no one's ever going to be better than Hitchcock, I'd say Raging Bull comes pretty damn close. And the shot where the fist hits the face, and the, and the face almost explodes with, with, with blood and, and spittle. You know, I've never yeah. seen anything like that you know, in a movie before. And it probably, and I can't ever think of a previous movie that ever did that before. And nobody had done what Scorsese did, where he played with all kinds of weird sounds and film speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they thought he was a show-off, and that's why they didn't appreciate it, because he was doing stuff mm-hmm. with the camera that none of them would ever do. Put the camera in one spot, you know? <laughs> it's like, but but he would play with speeds, and he would have weird sounds in the background, like a lion roaring, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just like a woman's scream, a weird abstract woman's scream out of nowhere, cutting to mm-hmm. the next scene, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Craig, you were talking last week about the fact that, that Apocalypse Now has a hallucinogenic feeling to it. And part of that is the soundtrack. The soundtrack was amazing right. in Apocalypse Now and groundbreaking. Nothing like that had ever been done before. People had never heard anything like that in a movie theater before. They had to actually rewire and re-outfit theaters in order so that they were capable of playing the sounds that, that they created for that movie. And so we have two movies in a row and two years in a row consecutively, Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull, that were tour de force movies mm. absolutely absolutely uh, as showy as possible and the movies that end up winning are two two small family dramas yeah kramer versus kramer and ordinary people right and they're good movies yeah mm-hmm. they're they're good solid dramas that move you they're about characters and you know what i notice about this group and god the breeders hate it when i talk about this but um i didn't realize how much until we had these little comment ratings thing <laughs> And when I started complaining about men again in the Academy, somebody said, oh, you know, we're getting so tired of you talking about that. And it had like 39 likes. (laughs) Gee, trying to tell me something, people. But I will just say this one last thing, which is that, you know, if you think of a certain person that we all know who is very much driven by ego, um, and you think of them projecting onto characters in film and how they want to see themselves reflected. Well, turning out as an overweight, you know, burnt out stand-up comic, you know, telling horrible jokes in some sad bar is not how many of them project themselves. They would much rather be projected as, you know, this dashing, beautiful, um, iconic golden boy film actor who directs, you know, his piece de resistance with um, ordinary people. And so they project their Oscar story onto Robert Redford, and they look at Raging Bull as, I don't want to be that ever, you know. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Rocky wins the Oscar because it's a feel-good movie, and Raging Bull gets clobbered because it's not, even though both films came from the same producers. Yeah, that's mm. why it's not so difficult for me to ease into the 80s, because, frankly, I was beginning to, I'm beginning to get a little bit depressed by the mid-70s when Rocky won. And, <laughs> and, and, and even when, you know, because things had already, that, 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 that pinnacle really only lasted three or four years in the early 70s. But you see where I'm going with this, though, right? You see that I'm going with this, like, good characters where they project themselves onto somebody like Rocky. It reflects people in a good light. It reflects men in a good light, in a heroic light, you know. Makes them feel good about who they are. Yeah. And I don't think movies that, that don't do that can win. I just don't. Maybe, maybe the same goes for actresses, too. 
It could be. I mean, at least it, it seemed to go that way this past year. Uh, everyone, you'd, you'd, I mean, people would a lot would lot, would much rather be Tiffany than 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 the character that Emmanuel Weaver played. Much rather be Loretta Lynn than to be Mary Tyler Moore's character as well. It goes back to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And you know, some actresses like Charlize Theron and Monster or. Um, you know, where it's just unequivocal performance that there's no way it's going to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, some of those that can't be explained. And I, the only movie that I can come up with that, that doesn't really fit that paradigm is Godfather 2, you know, All About Eve, um, maybe No Country for Old Men, although I could even make an argument about that one. But And I do think that the movie, that when you look at those years and you look at the movies that they were competing against, there was really no no uplifting alternative. There, right. was, there was no good... I think if, King, if the King's Speech had come out the year of Godfather, the Godfather would have been in some trouble. Oh, yeah. So King's Speech <laughs> and Social Network are perf- is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Because, because King's Speech was, you know, not only heroic side, but it was tall, gorgeous Colin Firth waspy Colin Firth and, you know, these really likable filmmakers and Social Network was, you know, depraved, um, you know, self-centered, you know, brats making a million dollars and then David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin as the filmmakers. So forget it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's crazy to have ever thought that that was even a possibility. Because I love to hear myself talk, can I read a little bit of uh, Pauline Kael's review of uh, Raging Bull? Oh, please yeah. do, but oh, my heart. It just kind of goes, it, it, I, I, I refuse to let go of my theory that, um, that history is, is a little bit smarter than what people were at the time. Listening to Jake and Joey go at each other like macho clowns in Cassavetti's movies, I know I'm supposed to be responding to a powerful, ironic realism, but I just feel trapped. Mm. Jake says, you dumb fuck, and Joey says, you dumb fuck, and they repeat it and repeat it, and I think, what am I doing here watching these two dumb fucks? When Scorsese did Mean Streets, Alice doesn't live here anymore in Taxi Driver, the scenes built through language and incident, and other characters turned up. But when he works with two actors and pushes for raw intensity, the actors repeat their vapid profanities, goading each other to to dredge up some hostility and some variations and twists. And we keep looking at the same faces, Jake and Joey or Jake and Vicky. They're the only people around for most of the movie. You can feel the director sweating for greatness, but there's nothing under the scenes, no subtext, only this actor's version of tension. Basically, the movie is these dialogue bouts and Jake's fights in the ring. Mm. Which... I mean, brutal, really brutal. So, I mean, it definitely was polarizing, and and, and not only the fact that it was uh, the the characters were disagreeable, and like you said, Sasha, the violence was hard to stomach, and apparently for Pauline Kael, even the language was difficult to listen to, and to it's and a, to it's a form of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm. To just to just to take that the taste of that review out of our mouth, let's remember that <laughs> that raging bull. I mean, then then um, you know. Forty years later, *Raging Bull* is is number eight on the sight and sound uh, list of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, and where is it now? Uh, I'm I don't know. I'm I'm was I think I'm I'm thinking of night of 2002. I can't I can't put my finger on it right now. Well, I can see why there wasn't exactly a, a you know a happy party you know applauding Scorsese. I mean now you know you guys were getting a really really excellent education on the Oscars looking through mm-hmm. this year by year because we already know now that there's no way Raging Bull could have ever won that. There's just no mm-hmm. way you know given the the reaction by the leading critical voice at the time. Pauline mm-hmm. Kael. I don't know how long her, her reign lasted after that, but 
you know, back then it wasn't like now where you had 40, 50, 60 critics ringing in on a film. You had a couple, you know, maybe 15 at the most, but only a handful that were, that meant anything. And I think that he, he definitely made his mark with that film. And it was, it's, it's considered one of the great masterpieces by him uh, to change filmmaking forever as Jaws did, um, Star Wars did, you know, the Godfathers and Apocalypse Now did. I mean, you know, where they are in film history, winning an Oscar doesn't change that. But we know now that how impossible that would have been. That's the thing that's important to keep reminding yourself of, I think, when you're thinking about Oscars, is that the Oscars, to me, are not forward-looking. They're, as we've talked about before, they're more of a reflection of a time and a specific time and a place they're interesting because of that but they're not they're not interested in history they're interested in the moment Mm. and likability yeah who they like and and it just so happens that a lot of the films they've picked have like ordinary people i think was a good pick and part of that is that robert redford continued to work um and challenge himself and and i was just watching a movie on the sundance channel and i was thinking about robert redford and the impact he alone has had on film and film history and the future of film. And, uh, what he Even did. if he had done nothing more than direct the movies that he directed, he would have his legacy would be uh, stellar. But he's done so much more than that with Sundance, right? Yeah, as opposed to like Roger Advilson, who did mm, Rocky, mm-hmm. where you know nothing really came of that. Uh, I hope and another actor who um, uh, just uh, eight or nine years later. Uh, Kevin Costner and Martin Scorsese when when Goodfellas was up against yeah. Dances with Wolves. Kevin Costner that was the that was the peak of his career and he never really um, made good on that. He really mm. never made good on the, on the Oscar that he got. Yeah, but he had that movie and and that is a movie that reflects the best, you know, the most heroic man. Mm-hmm. And Braveheart is also that movie, by the way. And you know good looks and golden boy status and if you're a winner all of that seems to come into play and the money nobody helps nobody wants a winner nobody yeah. wants a loser nope wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think Raging Bull has some of the best dialogue I've ever heard in a movie I, I can quote it many lines from it you know and people quote that movie constantly and I do hear people bring up um, ordinary people now and again but Pauline Kael was 100% wrong I think in what she was saying. I think I think her description is accurate, but her interpretation of it is inaccurate. I think their their verbal bouts are very much like the boxing ring bouts, but that's that to me makes them powerful. Yeah, I not, mean, not deadening. Speaking of which, another movie that, that looking back on now, I think is a masterpiece, but but had such bad publicity for the previous for the, during production that it was totally overlooked altogether. Is uh, Heaven's Gate mm. in nineteen eighty. Um, was that this which, year too? Yeah, an amazing. Oh it? God, it didn't get any Oscar nominations. I guess I can't think of any. I, I don't even know if it, I don't even know if I got a cinematography nomination, which is incredibly. I cannot even believe that. The reaction to it was so bad that people actually re rethought what they thought of the Deer Hunter. Oh, that's true. That that they they sort of had buyer's remorse about the Deer Hunter, yeah, even if they made a mistake in over evaluating. It was nominated for for one Oscar for art direction. And didn't you say that um, that that really changed the history of film? 
didn't you say that that was the movie, one of the movies that, that really well, there were, um, there were, marked a, a, you know, a change? It, it's held up as the movie that killed the 70s auteur period because it cost so much money and because the director got so much of what he wanted and it, it's he came across as being an ego out of control and the studio, um, United Artists, was already on the ropes at that point and they didn't know how to handle this guy and they were just thinking, you know, let's get it done and win some Oscars and it bombed the box office. It bombed critically. Uh, all of the top brass at United Artists had had, had um, mutinied that year, the year before. They all went split off. The, the CEO and president and head of production, everybody split off from United Artists because they were unhappy with the way that Transamerica Corporation was trying to dictate the movies they were making. They didn't think that it w- that was uh, anything like what the tradition of United Artists had ever, had ever represented. And so they split off to, to form Orion, the Orion Film Company, and they left United Artists without any, without any executives who had any experience. And so in order to try to prove that they could still survive without their top brass, the people who were left behind decided they would take um, the Oscar-winning director from the year before and give him carte blanche, a blank check to do whatever he wanted, and they were sure that they could impress the hell out of everyone. And, he, and it just went out of control. It just spun completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And, but it, is, it does, it does uh, Heaven's Gate gets the blame for bringing down United Artists, but it, that was not the reason. It was because they lost all of their executives because of the Transamerica Corporation was trying to hold them under their thumb too, too, too strictly. Wow. Well, it's um, it, it, they wrote a whole book about it, isn't there? It's a big, thick mm-hmm. book about uh, called Final yeah, Cut. Yeah. One of the Did you mention that already? I think we have mentioned it before, oh, but sorry. we kept saying we we're going to wait. No, we were gonna, we were going to keep waiting until 1980 before we brought it up. I have mentioned it before. It's a great book. It's called Final Cut. There's actually a really fantastic documentary um, about based on on Final Cut that you can find on YouTube, and you have to watch it in like seven different segments because they couldn't, you know, they had to break it up in order to. To put it on YouTube, but it tells the entire story from the very beginning. What what every what went wrong every step of the way. And I would highly recommend that you seek that out. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing piece of. It's like, it's like Hearts of Darkness only with a bad ending. <laughs> I kind of didn't like the book that much. I kind of thought it was a little self-serving because it was written by one of the executives who was had no business being in the position that he was in, mm-hmm. and he really lets. Um, What's his name? The director, Michael Cimino, Cimino. He really lets him hold the bag and take responsibility for it all when it, when Cimino was basically just doing what he could get away with, which is what any self-respecting mm-hmm. creative person would do. And I kind of feel like That's, it, it, it shades the movie unfairly against Cimino. You will, it, have it, a, it you will find the, the same... You will find the same flaw in the documentary then, too, because they interview that guy. They interview the guy who was left holding, who was in charge of letting Chimino run rampant. And he does uh, try to vindicate himself and tries to put a lot of the blame on Chimino. But it's still a really, it's really informative for a lot of reasons. For one thing I didn't realize, they tried to get some reporters up there to, in uh, Wyoming or Montana, where they were filming it, to try to see what was going on up there, why it was taking so long, and why, that was, why, the, why the budget was going out of control and Chimino wouldn't let anybody on on location he ran them off and so there was a reporter for the LA Times who applied for a job as extra as an extra on Heaven's Gate and he got on the inside and observed what was going on for like two months then he quit and came back and wrote this expose that was in the Los Angeles Times about all the things that he was seeing that he felt he was seeing go wrong and by that that just smeared everyone's impression of what was happening 
Mm. He talked about cocaine use and all kinds of stuff that really there's no there's no other substantiation for it. Wow. It was a mess. It was a total disaster. But the movie itself, the movie itself, especially now that it's been reconstructed, too, because what happened, they previewed it, and it was like three hours or over three hours long, and it was savaged by the by the preview audiences. And so they cut it. They cut about 40 minutes out of it, right, Craig? I can't remember the exact amount, but they really they really shredded it. And so then when they re, re-premiered it, gave it in a second premiere, it was... Uh, it was all broken up. It didn't make. It made even less sense because the the guts had been torn out of it. But now that it's been reconstructed and 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 it's on blue right now on Criterion, you can watch what Jamil intended. And it's a really fantastic film, I think. It's the last one of the last of the great big auteur-driven pictures. And even if you can look at it and say that it has flaws, I think anybody who loves movies has to has to appreciate the goodness in it and and how much we miss movies like that, especially in this era when all blockbusters are sort of formless and carbon copy and, and landed down to appeal to a large, as large of a possible audience as, as it can. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Things have really, really gone into the crapper. Um, I wanted to spend, do a really quick rundown of the films, some of the films that were released in 1980 that are that were pretty uh, groundbreaking in different ways. You know, mm-hmm. um, Airplane, Bad timing, uh, Nicholas Rogue, which you know was kind of a big deal at the time. I remember a lot of people talking about it. It's funny how the movies that I remember from this era weren't necessarily um, Oscar movies in any way. So there was the Big Red One, Sam Fuller, um, the Blue Lagoon with uh, you know uh, Brooke Shields, Brooke Shields. Caddyshack, one of the, my favorite comedies of all time, Carney with Jodie Foster, The Changeling with George C. Scott. Um, the Shining, Stardust Memories, Urban Cowboy, The Last Metro, Truffaut, The Fog, John Carpenter, um, and Fade to Black with Dennis Christopher. Did I already say that? Did you that? mention uh, American Gigolo? And Cruising. Did I say Cruising? Cruising I mean, was did, no. yeah. William Friedkin's Cruising, yeah. Does anybody remember The Gods Must Be Crazy? Yeah, I do, totally. That was sure. a huge deal, and it made like $50 million at the time, which for a tiny little movie like that is incredible. Yeah, I mean, the Oscars really represent just the tiniest little piece of the pie for what would, would go on in any given film year, but particularly this year. I mean, just, did Stardust Memories really get no Oscar nominations? That's like his one of his best movies. That's hard to, that's hard to fathom. Yeah, I know. Um, one interesting side note um, about the year that we're looking at is... Um, in the foreign language category, Kagamusha by Akira Kurosawa was sort of um, half rescued by um, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. They convinced 20th Century Fox to step in and finish funding it when the Japanese studio Toho um, was getting ready to back out. And so they ended up getting executive producer credits on it. But it was sort of um, Kurosawa, who was a titan of, of international cinema, um, it was sort of a comeback film for him. He had been on the ropes for at least 10 years. I mean, he, his last um, really popular film, I think, was Redbeard, which was 1965. And he, he'd had a couple since then, and they just didn't, um, they didn't really hit at all. And I think there was a suicide attempt in there. And he had a big falling out with uh, Toshiro Mifune and um, 
so this was kind of his big comeback, and it sort of set the stage for Iran, which made an even bigger splash like five years later. Amazing, really. And there, there are several stories that year about movies that that uh, had a lot of trouble getting finished, and and when they finally made it to the screen, they they the studios ended up uh, either. A lot of times they were damaged. A lot of times they were they were they were they were uh, edited and, and taken and torn apart. And uh, in a couple of the cases, happy cases, they were resurrected and saved, like the like Kagamusha. You can almost feel the forces of creativity being exhausted and slowly losing out to the forces of commerce. I mean, just the idea mm -hmm. that Transamerica would be the head of a major movie studio that was originally started by Charlie Chaplin. And all of his buddies, and was a very, was a was even in its, in its name an artist-friendly studio. That now, the the bean counters are, are calling the shots, and, and movies are are taking a toll, or are suffering the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was a that was a major force in the that started, I think, to really damage a lot of the studios in the in the late seventies. It began really in the '60s, um, but at least the movie, at least the, the conglomerates that took over studios in the '60s were entertainment conglomerates. The the companies that the the, the, the uh, global corporations that, that that stepped in to take over uh, movie studios in the in the '70s and '80s were had nothing to do with entertainment. I mean, even Paramount uh, what was it Gulf Western? What was Gulf Western? It was just a really like a holding company or something, right? And so that crushed that crushed a lot of artistic. Um, um, freedom, and especially I really think that, like that reflects the priorities that we see today. It's, it's Sasha, like the beginning of the end. Because Sasha, you've talked a lot, but maybe um, Godfather and Jaws and The Exorcist were huge blockbusters, but they weren't blockbusters in the same way that uh, that Star Wars was, or that a couple of years later that ET was. And studios decided that they wanted to only be making at least they wanted to be making that kind of movie all the time because they that was reliably hugely profitable but like back then it wasn't like all these people on twitter watching the opening day you know right. what what are the numbers on friday mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you know the the word gets out that it's a bomb right it's and, only even been in the last 15 or 20 years that those numbers have been reported outside of the trade papers isn't it i mean i remember mm -hmm. a time when that they, they first started reporting that stuff on entertainment tonight which is ostensibly where everybody would hear about it Mm -hmm. Right. But now on Twitter, it's just a whole different thing. It's like we have become um, the deciders. And you know what? I think we're failing at the job. We're not we're not doing a good job because what we're doing is heading more toward movies that can open big and let and away from movies that will struggle a little bit, but might might prove themselves worthy in the end. I'm not saying the internship is that movie. I'm just saying in mm -hmm. general. But it really can. It can. It, this, the talk of, of of dead in the water Oscar chances can start the very the on opening weekend. If a movie doesn't live up to expectations, then then people are start writing it off. If it makes less than than the predicted than the estimated, you know, um, haul, you know that people can already start to dismiss it because it, it, in some sense it's a failure in their eyes. Right. It does definitely play in. Reviews and box office can play in. Although lately I'm starting to see a trend away from reviews. I think maybe because it's finally reached saturation point where there are so many critics now and they're not even qualified, most of them, that mm. the Academy has kind of stopped paying attention. Because you it's see all, these. It's, it's white noise now. 
Yeah, you see these movies, these movies with terrible reviews getting in, into the Oscar race. That, and movies for sure, like Cloud Atlas, like they saw those movies and decided not to nominate them. It didn't have anything to do with what the critics said, I don't think. But right. I, and I think good reviews can get a movie into the Oscar race, you know, for and sure. Were, and I think that the critics' awards used to uh, play a larger role when there were fewer critics' awards. When there was only the L.A. Film Critics and New York Film Critics and the National Board of Review, they meant something. But when, But there are... 20, 25, or 30 different critics' awards now, and that's what you said, Craig. It's just white noise because um, there's really no way to say that the L.A. critics are necessarily any better than the Ohio critics. <laughs> right. But, 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 but it also it all runs together. Even if the Ohio critics are three people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still an award one, you know? Yeah. It's, it's become crazy, and I, I have to, to have to take responsibility for having participated in the growth of that industry. I really did. You know, when I started tracking critics' reviews, suddenly critics review, there were more critics' awards coming out, and they tripled since the time I started, at least tripled, maybe quadrupled, just from Although, every... I will say that the way that you do, the way you put together the contender tracker, it does have significance. When you do start racking up those points and you start putting things, putting awards in the columns of movies, those movies do are the cream that rises to the top. Yeah, and you have to consider reviews um, cherry picked from people whose opinions that you think still matter. Mm-hmm. And then also, box office can sometimes make a difference, like it did with The Help, for instance, mm-hmm. like and The Blind Side. Those two movies were. Definitely power power plays, you know, movie that made a lot of money, got put into the race. It doesn't always help, especially it doesn't help with superhero movies, which can't get arrested with the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And it helped but, in 1980 with, with when Universal had, had uh, a movie that nobody was going to see, Resurrection, and it had a Coal Miner's Daughter that, that was the number seventh top box office movie of the year that everybody was going to see. They threw all of their weight behind promoting Sissy Spacek and, and Ellen Burstyn isn't still not over it. You know, she's mm. still mad about it, and it, and maybe rightly so, because they just they they really didn't treat her fairly. Yeah, I think that I think that um, Sissy Spacek deserved to win, but but Ellen Burstyn didn't deserve to be dis- discarded. 